and welcome to My Favorite Theorem. I'm your co-host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. And this is your other co-host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. I'm looking forward to this because of the time zone issue here. This, this is taking place yes. two, two, on yes, two different very, days. <laughs> yes, we're delighted exactly. to be uh, joined by Nalini Joshi, who is uh, joining us from tomorrow in Australia. Uh, which we're getting a kick out of because we're easily amused. That's right. So, hi, Nalini. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Nalini Joshi. I'm a professor of applied mathematics at the University of Sydney. What else can I say apart from saying I'm broadcasting from the future? Um, <laughs> I, I was born in Burma and uh, I moved to Australia as a child when, with my parents when they emigrated to Australia. And most of my education has been in Australia, except for going to the U.S. to do a Ph.D., which I did at Princeton. Oh, OK. Nice. So you've spent some time on uh, in both hemispheres, I guess, Absolutely. in multiple times of your life. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, when I was a, a little kid, I always I had this idea that like the world could never end because you know, you know, in the U.S., there's almost always someone who's a full day ahead. And so, you know, if like I know that Thursday would would have to happen because if it was Wednesday where I was, someone was already living in Thursday. So like the the world could never end. Um, well, that's such a deep insight. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I was I was watching I, football I mean, when I was a kid. What are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I used to hang out at the back of the school library reading through all the old Scientific American magazines. If only they had columns like yours, Evelyn. That would have been fantastic. Uh, but, you know, I really, really wanted to work out what was happening in the universe. And so I thought about things like time travel and space travel a lot when I was a teenager. Oh, so did you start your career wanting to maybe go more into physics or did you always know you wanted to be a mathematician? No, I really wanted to become an astrophysicist because I thought that was the way, surely, to understand space travel. And I wanted to be an astronaut, uh, actually. And um, But, you know, uh, I went to an all-girls school for the first half of my school years. And um, I still remember going to see the careers counsellor, telling her I wanted to be an astronaut. She looked, she looked at me and she said, oh, you have to be more realistic, dear. Uh, you know, there was no way that somebody like me could ever aspire to it. And nowadays, it's it's normal almost. You know, people from right. all different countries around the world become astronauts. But at that time, I had to think about something else. And I thought, okay, I'm going to become a scientist, explore things in my own mind, through my own mind. And um, that was one way I could explore the universe. So I wanted to do physics when I came to university. I studied at the University of Sydney as an undergraduate. And um, when I got to first year physics, I realized my other big problem, which is that I have no physical intuition whatsoever. <laughs> I really needed to understand things from a very uh, explicit, literal, uh, logical, analytical point of view. And that's how I came to know I must be more of a mathematician. I have the same oh, okay. problem. You know, I, I, I thought I might. I was always going to be a math major, but I, I thought I might pick up a second major in physics. And then I walked into this junior level relativity class and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it at all. And then I, 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 I dropped it and took logic instead. I was much happier. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Good. 
Yeah. So we invited you on to find out what your favorite theorem is. Yes. Well, that was a very difficult thing to do. It was like choosing my favorite child, which I would never do. Um, but I finally decided that I would choose Mittag Leffler's theorem mm -hmm. because that's something that really I was blown away by when I started reading more about complex analysis as a student. I mean, we all learned the basics of complex analysis, which was beautiful in itself. Mm -hmm. But but then when you went a little bit further, so I started reading, for example, um, the book by Lars Elfors, which I still have, called Complex Analysis. There it is. Yep. Still yeah, in use. Which was, yeah, which was first, I think, uh, published in 1953. I had the 1979 version. Mm -hmm. um, and saw that there were so many powerful things you could do with complex analysis. And the Mittag Leffler's theorem was one of the first ones that gave me that perspective. Um, and the, the main thing I loved about it was that you were taking what was a local small piece of information around, uh, for example, poles of a function. So we're talking about meromorphic functions here. That's the subject of the theorem. Uh, you're given a series. Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Can we maybe uh set the stage a little bit so what is sure. a meromorphic mm -hmm. function okay so a meromorphic function is a function that's analytic except at isolated points which are poles where it has only poles the worst singularities it has are poles mm -hmm. right. so these um, are kind of places where the function uh explodes but uh, it's otherwise right. very smooth and friendly. Right, and it right. explodes so in a I, controlled way, right? It's like, um, right. you know, it's like one mm -hmm. over z to the n for some finite n kind of thing. Exactly, right. Right. Uh, an integer uh, mm -hmm. positive n. Yeah. Um, so when I try to explain this kind of thing to people who are not mathematicians, I, I try and say it's like walking around in a landscape with volcanoes. Mm -hmm. They're well-timed, well-controlled, well-spaced volcanoes, but you're walking in the landscape uh, of, for example, just the Earth, say, uh, you know, walking around these places. And there are well-defined pathways for you to move along mm -hmm. uh, by analytic continuation. And um, you can, you know ahead of time how strong the volcano's eruption is going to be, and you can observe it from a little distance away if you like. Uh, but there is no danger because you can skirt all of these Volcanoes. That's a really good metaphor. I'm going to start using that. I, I teach complex variables in the summer. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to start using that. That's good. Oh, good. <laughs> so a meromorphic function, as I say, is like uh, the walk on this. It's a function that gives you uh, a way, a pathway, and uh, the elevation, the uh, the smoothness of your path in this landscape. Whereas it's and its poles are where the volcanoes are. Yeah. So Mittag Leffler's theorem then um, is about. Uh, did you say controlling exactly where those poles are? Um, not quite. It's the other way around. So if okay. you give me information about locations of poles and how strong they are, that is the the most singular part of that pole, mm -hmm. then I can reconstruct the function that has poles exactly at those points with exactly those strengths. That's what the theorem tells you. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you need is just a sequence of points and that information about the, um, the strength of the poles. Uh, and you need 
uh, potentially an infinite number of these poles. Uh, and uh, there's one other condition that the sequence of these poles uh, has a limit at infinity. Okay, so they don't they don't cluster. In other words. Exactly. Right. In, exactly. Right. They don't coalesce anywhere. They don't have a, a limit point that's in the finite plane. Mm -hmm. Their limit point is at infinity. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But there could be an infinite number of these poles if they're isolated, like I, uh, you know, on integer lattice points in the complex plane or something like right. that. Right. Right. For example. Yes. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. So if you take it. If you take your standard trigonometric functions, like the sine function or the cosine function, you know that it has periodically spaced zeros. Mm -hmm. And you take the reciprocal of that function, then you've got periodically placed poles. Mm -hmm. And it's a meromorphic function. Right. And you can work out which trig function it is by knowing those poles. So it's powerful in the sense that you can reconstruct the function everywhere not just at the precise points which are poles, you can work out that function anywhere in between the poles by using this theorem. Mm -hmm. That's really remarkable. Yeah. That, that's, that's the surprising part, right? Because you know, exactly. if, you, if you just wanted, if you knew you had a finite number of poles, yeah, you could sort of imagine that you could kind of locally construct the, the function and then just kind of glue that together. That wouldn't be a problem. Yes. But the fact yes. that you could do this for infinitely many is yes. really, really pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right. And um, so it's like going from local information mm -hmm. that you might have in, say, one little patch of time or one little patch of space and working out what happens everywhere in the universe by knowing those little local patches. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the local to global information mm -hmm. that I find so intriguing, so powerful. And, and then it struck me that um, this information is given in the, in the form of a sum of those singular parts. So the function is reconstructed as a series, as an infinite sum of the singular parts of information that you're given around each pole. I mean, that's a very simple way of mm -hmm. defining the function, just taking a sum of all of these Singular things. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Then it, oh, I love complex analysis. It's just it it's just full of all of these things where, you know, you you can take such a small local amount of information and suddenly know what has to be happening everywhere. It's it's so right. wonderful. <laughs> right, right. And those two elements, the local to global and the fact that you have information coming from a discrete set of points to give you continuous smooth information everywhere but in between. Those two elements, I realized much later, feature in a lot of the research that I do. So I was already primed to look for that kind of information mm -hmm. in my later work. Yeah, yeah, so I was going to ask, you know, this, I, I was wondering how this came up today for you, maybe not the Mittag-Leffler theorem specifically, but using complex analysis in your work as an applied mathematician. Right. So um, what I do is I build uh, toolboxes of methods. So I, I, I'm an applied mathematician in the sense that I want to make usable tools. Um, so I study asymptotics of functions. I study how you define functions globally, uh, functions that turn out to be useful 
in various mathematical physics contexts. Um, so I'm more of a theoretical applied mathematician, if you like. <laughs> or, or, or I often say to people, I'm actually a mathematician without an adjective. Right. Yeah. You know that there is a, a kind of a, a hierarchy of numbers in the number system. We all start with knowing counting numbers. We can then add and subtract them. Subtraction leads you to, leads you to negative integers. Um, uh, multiplication and division leads you to, leads you to rational numbers. Uh, and then solving polynomial equations leads you to algebraic numbers. So each time you're building a, a higher sort of mm -hmm. being of a, of a type of number. And then beyond all of those are numbers like pi and e, which are transcendental numbers in the sense that they can't be constructed in terms of finite number of operations of, from these earlier known operations right. and earlier known objects. So alongside that, hierarchy of numbers, there's a hierarchy, a very, very um, uh, closely related hierarchy of functions. So integers correspond to polynomials, uh, square roots and so on correspond to algebraic functions. Um, and then there are transcendental functions. So the exponential being one of them, exponential of x, for example. Um, so um, a lot of the, the transcendentality of functions uh, are, is occupied by functions that are defined by differential equations. So I studied different, I started off by studying differential equations and the corresponding functions that they define. So even when you're looking at linear differential equations, you get very complicated transcendental functions. Um, things like the exponential being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but so I study functions that are even more highly transcendental in the sense that they solve nonlinear equations. Uh, and they are like pi in the sense that these functions turn out to be universal models in many different contexts, uh, particularly in random matrix theory, uh, where you might be, for example, trying to work out um, the statistics of how uh, fundamental particles interact when you fire them around the huge loop of the CERN collider. Um, and, and you do that by looking at uh, distributions uh, of entries in uh, infinitely large matrices where the entries are random variables. Now, under certain symmetries, symmetry groups acting on the... Uh, so, for example, you might have particles that have... Um, properties that, that, that allow these random matrices to be orthogonal matrices or Hermitian matrices mm -hmm. or some other type of matrices. So you, when you study ensembles of matrices with these symmetry properties and you study uh, properties like what's their largest eigenvalue, then you get a probability distribution function which happens to be, by some miracle, one of those functions I've studied. They are, there's a kind of a miraculous bridge there that nobody really knows why this happens. And then there's another uh, miraculous thing, which is that these models using random matrices happen to be valid, not just for particle physics, but if you are studying bus arrival times in Cuernavaca or um, aircraft boarding times, or when you study patient's card sorting, um, all kinds of things are, universally described by these models and therefore these functions. So first of all, these functions 
have this property. They're locally defined by initial value problems given for the differential right. equation. Right. But then they have these amazing properties um, which allow them to be globally defined in the complex plane. So even though we, don't, we didn't have the technology to describe these functions explicitly, not like I could say, take one of the sine function that gives you a meromorphic function whose formula I can write down, whose picture I can draw. These functions are so transcendental that you can't do that very easily. But I study uh, their global properties that makes them more predictable wherever you go in the complex plane. So the Mittag-Leffler theorem sort of sets up the baseline I could just write them as a sum of their poles. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's just so powerful to me. Um, so in another sense, right, so there, there are so many facets of this. I could go on and on. But um, there is another, another direction I wanted to insert into our conversation, which is that uh, the next uh, natural level, when you go beyond things like trigonometric functions and their reciprocals is to take functions that are doubly periodic. So trigonometric functions have one period. If you take double periodicity in the complex plane, then you get elliptic functions, right? Mm -hmm. So these also have sums of their poles as an expression for them. Um, so um, now take any one of these functions. They turn out to be uh, functions that parametrize very nice curves, mm -hmm. um, cubic curves, for example, right. uh, in two dimensions. Um, and, and so the whole picture shifts from an analytic one to an algebraic geometric one. So there are two sides to the same story. You have meromorphic functions on one side and differential equations. And on the other side, you have algebraic functions and curves and properties, algebraic properties and geometric properties of these curves. Mm -hmm. And they give you information about the functions on the other side of that perspective. Right. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so, trying to understand that converse side so that I can get more information about those functions. Yeah, so, so using, using the algebraic uh, world. Uh, yeah. oh, mm -hmm. Exactly, the, the algebra geometric world, if you like. Mm -hmm. And, and this, is a, this was a huge challenge at the beginning because, I, as I said, I was educated as an applied mathematician. And that means primarily the analytic point of view. Right. But to try and marry that to the algebraic point of view is uh, something that turned out to be, uh, to have a high level, uh, a, a hurdle at the beginning. But once you get past that, it's actually so freeing and so beautiful so strikingly informative uh, that uh, you know, I, I'm now saying to people, all applied mathematicians should be learning algebraic geometry. Uh, well, and I, I would say the converse is true. I think the algebraic geometer should probably learn some applied math, right? Yeah, yeah. true, true, <laughs> that too. Uh, so there's, there's so many different perspectives here, and it all started for me with the Mittag-Leffler theorem. Yeah, right. so something we like to do on this show is to uh, ask our guests to pair their theorem with mm -hmm. something, food, beverage, music, anything like that. So what have you chosen to pair your mm -hmm. theorem with? So that was another difficult question. And I decided that uh, I would concentrate on the uh, discrete to continuous aspect of this, mm -hmm. 
or volcanoes to landscape, if you like. <laughs> so, um, so as I said, I was born in Burma. And in Burma, there are these uh, amazing dishes called letto. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a uh, Wikipedia link. Uh, <laughs> Great. So, so you can, can see the, the <laughs> yeah. spelling and the description. Not all of it is accurate, by the way, from what I remember. But anyway, uh, so letto is a hand mixed salad. Let is hand, tho mm -hmm. is mixture. Okay. And um, uh, in particular, the one that's based on rice, which is what I, my, one of my favorites. You take a series of different ingredients. Mm -hmm. So one is rice. Another might be noodles. They have to be specific types. Another is um, tamarind. Mm -hmm. uh, tamarind is a kind of a you know sour-based, mm -hmm. uh, plant-based thing, which you can make into a sauce. Another is fried onions, fried garlic. And then there's roasted chickpea flour or garbanzo flour. That sounds amazing. Uh, uh, then another one is uh, potatoes, boiled potatoes. Another one is uh, coriander leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are many, and each person might have their favorite suite of these many, many little dishes, which are all just in independent ingredients. And you take each of them into a bigger bowl and you mix it with your hands. Add as much spices as you want, chili powder, salt, lemon juice, and what you're doing is you're amalgamating and combining those discrete ingredients to create something that transcends mm. the discrete. So you no longer taste the distinct tamarind or the distinct fried onion mm -hmm. or, you know, potatoes. You have something that's like a, it's a fusion, if you like, but the, the taste is uh, totally different. It, it, you've created your meromorphic function, which is that taste in your mouth by combining those discrete things, which each of them you wouldn't eat separately. Sure. Um, Not fair. So no that, that's, it's almost dinner time here and I'm hungry. Oh, no, I'm this sorry. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Are there any Burmese restaurants in Gainesville? No. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I know there's one in San Francisco, I'm which sure. I recommend. Yes, I, I actually was just at a Burmese restaurant in San Francisco last oh, month. Oh, wow. had this tea leaf salad that sounds like oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's oh, one good. variation. It, that yeah. Pickled tea leaves mm -hmm. as an ingredient. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. So, so, and I was also thinking about music. Um, so there's uh, these compositions by Philip Glass and Steve Reich, which are basically percussive, independent sounds. Mm -hmm. And then when they interweave into those patterns, you create this, these harmonies and music that transcends each of those particular percussive instruments, the stripes on the marimba and, the, mm -hmm. and xylophones and so on. Yeah, so yeah. maybe like six marimbas by Steve Reich. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, another of our guests. Uh, her episode hasn't aired yet, though it will by the time uh, our listeners are hearing this. Another of our guests chose Steve Reich to pair with her uh, theorem, right. also. Oh, so right. um, he's uh, one of the most popular musicians among mathematicians, pairing their theorems with music. Wow! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> Somebody should write a book about this. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Well, so my, my son, my son is actually he's a he's a, a college student. He's studying composition, music composition, yeah. and and his his instrument of choice. He is a percussionist. So I need to I need to get on him about the Steve Reich business. I, he, he he must know. Yeah. yeah, he's got to. Yeah, this has been great fun, Nalini. I I learned a lot about not just math, oh, but 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 
I, I really knew nothing about Bernie, Burmese food. I mean, I... Uh, right, I mean, right. Well, I recommend it highly. <laughs> uh, next time I'm there. <laughs> yeah. I don't so get that part England, of you said something about mentioning books or um, something else, favorite Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, if yeah. you have a, a website or book or anything you'd like to mention <laughs> on here. All right. So this is my book. I think it would be uh, probably a bit too far away from the topic of the of the conversation, but it has this idea of going from continuous to discrete mm -hmm. and, yeah, so and is, thinking yeah. about these functions. Mm -hmm. It's called discrete systems and integrability. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we'll put uh, a link to some information about that book, and we'll also link to your website on the the show notes so people can. Yeah. Find you 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 tweet some that's I think yes. that's how we, we kind of met in the first place. That's right. That's right. Yeah, on, exactly. On Twitter, so yeah. uh, we'll put put a link to that as well, so people Excellent. can follow you there. Thank yeah, you so well, much. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. I hope I hope Friday is great. You can you know, give us a preview of it while we're still here. Yeah, we'll Thursday. find out tomorrow. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I'm sorry about the long delay. It's been a very intense few years for me. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Understandable. We're, we're glad you could fit it in. Have a good okay. day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wang. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpkinnison.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at My Favorite Theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.